0: The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday,
1: November 2nd, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I read a great book review in The Times today. A great, bad review. Dwight Garner really did not like the memoir by the performance artist Marina Abramovich. He says he knew he wouldn't like it by page 10, quote, where she declares that as a child growing up in post-war Yugoslavia, shouldn't play with dolls or toys. Instead, she writes in a passage that sets this book's tone of sleek, international, Bono-level pretentiousness, quote, I preferred to play with the shadows of passing cars on the wall. Bono like pretentiousness. I'd add David Blanian pomposity and Gwyneth Paltrow esque gloop. In fact, in a move that Gwyneth might cop, she signed up these performers to recreate her works a few years ago, and they all had to sign a contract requiring them to fast on green tea and water, to sleep on the floor of a barn, and to practice nostril flushing and tongue scraping. Marina Abramovich's works are art. Why? Because of the intention of the artist. I want that gig. Actually, I kind of have that gig. Intention's about 90% of podcasting. The RSS feeds the other 10%. Anyway, here's Marina reading from her memoir about what peeved her about the interiors of the house she grew up with.
0: When I was young, I thought our flat was the high of luxury. Later, I discover it had once belonged to the wealthy Jewish family and had been confiscated during the Nazi occupation. Later, I also realized... The paintings my mother put in our apartment were not very good. Looking back, I think for these and other reasons, our home was really a horrible place.
1: Stolen from Jews, but also aesthetically unpleasing art equivalent travesties. Before Abramovich received some blowback, an early version of this memoir had her commenting on the aboriginal people of Australia. Thusly, they look like dinosaurs. When you first meet them, you have to put effort into it for one thing to Western eyes. They look terrible. Their faces are like no other faces on earth. They have big torsos. Just one bad result of their encounter with Western civilization is a high sugar diet that bloats their bodies and stick like legs. To be fair, she cautioned readers that they are to be treated as living creatures. Quick quiz! Which wasn't an actual piece of Marina Abramovich performance art? A. She screamed until she lost her voice. B. She blew her nose until she passed out. C. She brushed her hair until her scalp bled. D. She ingested antipsychotic drugs that caused temporary catatonia. The answer is B... She did not blow her nose until she passed out. She danced until she collapsed. Genius! Other pieces of her art, including the time that she and a former paramour, sorry, not pretentious enough, lover, traded hard slaps, hurled themselves at solid walls, and he pointed an arrow at her heart as she tensed the bow. That will either earn you a residency at MoMA or a four-game suspension from the NFL. The New Yorker says Abramovich's feminism has always been mythical, rather than a political understanding of women's oppression. So forget Title IX, let's just slay the Gorgon. The Guardian says of Walking Through Walls, the effect is quite revelatory. On the page, her stoicism takes on her narcissism and wrestles it to the ground. Marina Abramovich says, my brother soon developed some form of childhood epilepsy. He would have seizures and everyone hovered around him, giving him even more attention. Once, when no one was looking, I was six or seven, I tried to wash him and almost drowned him. I put him in the bath and he went plop under the water. If my grandmother hadn't taken him out, I might have been an only child. I was punished, of course. I was punished frequently for the slightest infraction. That's not slight. You almost killed your brother. She comes off as so dramatic. I would say the emperor has no clothes, but I'm sure that was the subject of a brilliant performance piece she did in 1978 while allowing scorpions to crawl all over her skin while balancing on the back of a gelded palomino. Brilliant! I do plan to buy Marina Abramovich's book and stare at it for hours at a time. Not read, just look and ponder and think. On the show today, I spiel about the Hillary surrogate who is there as a trap to Donald Trump. Will the wolf gobble up Little Red Riding Hood? But now two interviews. We go to Nevada to check in on the state of the Senate race there, but first former spokesman for the National Security Council and a key member of President Obama's campaign team, Tommy Vitor. unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter And not to wallow in, he could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter, or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for the Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H A R, like the first three letters in hard, B I N G E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The podcast Keeping It 1600 is just what it sounds like a quartet of former Obama hands desperately clinging to the institution that made them. It brings to mind the 2000 film Space Cowboys, where creaky septuagenarians played by Eastwood, Tommy Lee Jones, Sutherland, and James Garner do one last job. In podcast form, we have, we have Dan Pfeiffer, John Lovett, John Favreau, and my next guest, Tommy Vitor. Who was with Obama since 2004, a chief spokesman uh, during the campaigns and a key deputy? I'm mostly kidding, Tommy. How old's the oldest among you?
2: <laughs> I think Dan is uh, clocks in at 40, but the rest of us are are in that <laughs> sad late 30s era where we, you know, you have to figure out what to do with your life.
1: So here we are, speaking a couple of days before the election, uh, excited, exhausted,
2: infuriated. You know, the, the last week of an election is just the worst because, uh, you know, usually. it's just a lot of hand-wringing, and you have to wait out those final days and just make sure people are doing what they need to do, doing GOTV, um, getting voters to the polls, try to ignore all the the churn in the news. But um, obviously, this recent disclosure by uh, the FBI director has really created a lot of news and uh, anxiety among people I talk to. How do you think the Clinton campaign has handled it? I mean, I think they've handled it well. You know, it, it's an incredibly challenging uh, issue to deal with because not only did they not know what is what is in these emails, but neither did the FBI when they put out that letter. So, I mean, it's it's very hard to push back or offer context about something that no one has read yet. That said, I mean, I think the more facts that come out, I think, it makes people feel better and better about Um you know, what's likely to be the outcome here. But I I do think it's incredibly frustrating to have to manage a story like that this close to an election. And frankly, it's why the FBI normally doesn't comment on these sorts of things within 60 days of the election. And they they have clear protocol because it's politically explosive.
1: Even if it's true that the more facts come out, the more it either you could say helps the clinton campaign or at least throws cold water on the trumpeted idea that this is a earth-shattering bombshell is it also the case that people who haven't made up their minds a week until the election are low information voters who might not be following up on the further details
2: yeah i think that it, the people's views of this issue are pretty well baked in that said it is a distraction and it is a pain to deal with. And you've had these sort of blazing headlines for three days uh, in in the final days of an election when I think people would like to be talking about what you're going to do for the country or any of the issues that actually matter to people.
1: Is it easier to strategize against a conventional but competent candidate, say a Mitt Romney type, or a wild but often wildly incompetent candidate like Donald Trump?
2: I think that ultimately Donald Trump will be uh, proved to be a disastrous candidate and those who supported him will regret it. That said, I think going into this year there's sort of normal rules of engagement in politics. There's sort of a normal sense of what's in bounds, what's out of bounds, you know, sort of what we're going to talk about. That has been completely upended this year. And I think that's made it very very challenging because w- when Obama and McCain uh, we're going against each other. A lot of the debate was about, you know, how quickly to get our troops out of Iraq. Now we're talking about, you know, whether or not Donald Trump may or may not have sexually assaulted up to eleven women. I mean, it's just a, it's a totally different universe and totally different kind of campaign. And I think getting accustomed adjusted to that, and also getting adjusted to an environment where basically the only way to get covered is to make the campaign about something Donald Trump did or said or else it's just not going to break through.
1: I think that the answer to my question is probably you had a slightly easier job. It might not have seemed like that at the time, but they, they you could argue, have a better chance of winning. But their winning strategy relies on his self-sabotaging. So it's kind of anxiety producing if you're working in the campaign. You just got to trust that he's going to do something insane. And he has, but it's not really anything you've
2: done. If Donald Trump had an ounce of discipline in him, um, I think he could have leveraged his celebrity. He could have leveraged his outside Washington business persona and sort of you and had a message that actually resonated with voters and and talked about, you know, sort of a change message or an anti Washington message. He decided not to do that. He decided to make it all about himself. uh, And I think that's going to be his downfall.
1: Well, he has that, but he also has 30 other things and he keeps getting distracted yep. and he ratchets everything up to 11 such that when this new revelation hits, well, you've already called for her essentially to be indicted, if not drawn and quartered. Where do you go from there? Right. Yes. Yeah, so, right. <laughs> yeah. So many deficiencies. So <laughs> on your show, you talk about, you talk about the bedwetters who are the people who want to vote for Clinton, but are afraid she's going to lose. On my show, we have the Trump anxiety hotline, similar thing where I kind of talk people off the ledge. Nice. But what do we do? What do we do? We What happens, should Hillary, if Hillary, when Hillary wins, what happens with all these exhausted voters or all these nervous voters or all these people? I mean, they, it seems like we've created so much anxiety in America that doesn't seem to be a good base to govern from, if that is your base.
2: Yeah, I mean, governing is going to be incredibly challenging. I, I mean, you know, Barack Obama got into office and you had, had people talking about voting against the stimulus before they'd even seen it. You had Mitch McConnell saying... His primary goal was to block everything Obama did. This time, you have people talking about impeachment, and you have people saying that they're going to block Hillary Clinton's Supreme Justice nominees before she's even gone into office. So, I do think that there is a toxic environment in Washington that is a it's going to take a long time to change. I think a lot of this is going to be on. The Republican Party. I think Hillary will talk about reaching out, will try to to find common ground, meet with people, have a discussion. The question is, is it still going to be seen as more toxic to have a photo taken with a Democratic president because you're worried about a Tea Party primary than it is to be a part of a a body, uh, the Congress, that actually gets something done? And and that, I think, is an open question, and it makes me nervous.
0: Although
1: it is true, people were lining up against the stimulus. But Obama's high point in popularity, 67% approval, January 21st through 25th of 2009. So that was right after an election. I mean, what's it going to be like this time?
2: Uh, good question. I, I, I think that was a historic, exciting election against uh, John McCain, who was a, a hell of a good man and public servant and and someone who... Conducted himself with honor and everything he's done in his career. And it was just a different tenor. We're going to come off a a campaign where, you know, I think it's as nasty and negative and personal and off-putting for voters as we've ever seen. And I I think there will be some sort of honeymoon period. She will do, she will have a bump in the numbers in terms of approval when she gets office, I believe, or after election because there is momentum that comes from winning. Uh, But I, I, I think it will be, more challenging, and I think there is uh, there is cause for concern about sort of how we conduct ourselves in these elections, and frankly, the role that Trump is going to play going forward, and, and if he's going to continue to be this toxic force that gets booked on you know cable news every time he wants to just make up stuff. It,
1: it, this is a this would be a historic first too. But now it just seems to me that the gender dynamics here are so priced into everything that there won't even be that reflection. Um, I was listening to Rebecca Traster on uh, another podcast talk about how in 2008, when Hillary Clinton won New Hampshire, the New York Times didn't even note this was the first time that a woman had won a contested primary. That's unthinkable it, not to note that about an African-American. And that is something that, I don't know, do you see... That changing? Do you see that people will honestly, who were against Hillary the whole time, will say, Well, at least we have a woman president. At least that says something good about America. Will that make the people who didn't even vote for Hillary enthusiastic in the way that having the first black president made the people who didn't even vote for Barack some of those people enthusiastic?
2: I do think that if she is elected president, there will be a moment where we step back and reflect on how historic that is and how many barriers there were for women to vote, for women to serve in office, barriers that exist for women to this day in terms of, you know, there are many people who you you see them anecdotally, you see it in polling, say that they don't, they don't believe a woman should be president. And so bringing, you know, convincing those people may take longer, but I do think most of the country, I think there will be a lot of uh, women, you know, men with daughters, people who are decent human beings who step back and think, boy, it's about time.
1: Tommy Vitor is one of the hosts of the Keeping It 1600 podcast. Thanks so much, Tommy.
2: Thanks for having me. It's a lot of fun.
1: If the Democrats are to win the Senate, they have to pick up four seats. And indeed, they're ahead by big margins in Illinois, pretty big in Wisconsin. They hold the edge in Pennsylvania and are maybe slightly ahead in New Hampshire. Democrats also have a chance in Missouri and Indiana. However, there is one state where the Republicans could gain a seat that's held by a Democrat. In Nevada, Harry Reid is retiring. Here you have Republican Joe Heck, a doctor and former brigadier general. He's facing former Nevada Attorney General Catherine Cortez Masto. He's the Republican. She's the Democrat. So Congressman Heck's district includes a little bit of Las Vegas, most of the southern part of the state. You know, it's a pointy part down there, though he does have the backing of the conservative parts of the state, including up north in Washoe County. That's where Reno is. Maybe I should say he had the support, of the conservative parts of the state before this business of a certain New York businessman came up. The latest since this interview was recorded, he now says that he can't say if he'll vote for Trump, but he calls Trump qualified. So now let's go to my talk with Steve Sibelius, the political columnist for the Las Vegas Review-Journal. He explained it all to me in a rather noisy hall before the final presidential debate. If you want to talk Nevada Nevada politics, you talk to Steve Sebelius, and I am. Hi, Steve. How are you doing? So I want to ask you about the Nevada Senate race. Who do you think will win?
0: At this point, I would say I would give a slight lean to Joe Heck, as I have throughout the whole uh, campaign. And the reason I say that is unlike past Senate candidates that we've had, for example, Dean Heller, uh, Joe Heck's base is here in southern Nevada. So he will actually have higher turnout in the southern part of the state. Uh, And And just
1: to orient listeners, the northern state is more Republican in general.
0: Yeah, absolutely. In fact, the rurals are, are outrageously Republican. And Washoe County is almost exactly evenly divided. Most people coming from the north have to introduce themselves in the south. Joe Heck doesn't have to do that. He's known down here. And so as a result of that... The fact that he'll own the worlds and the fact that Washoe is so closely divided, and and will probably uh, will probably turn out maybe a little bit more Republican than that, I would still give the edge to him.
1: How much is Trump a drag on him?
0: You know, I think uh, he was becoming an ever heavier drag, which is why I think Joe Heck uh, got uh, divorced from uh, from uh, uh, Donald Trump down here in in Vegas, as opposed to Reno, where everybody used to go for the of the divorces and uh, I think he saw the bleeding that was happening from, uh, from, from uh, the fallout over what Trump had said and wanted to staunch that as quickly as possible.
1: I mean, is this race a stand-in for close races? Every time I interview um, someone who knows the politics of their state, they'll say, well, here's why it's similar to what's going on nationally, but you have to realize it's local issues. You know, is the, in, the, in Nevada, I, I suppose we could say the same. Maybe Trump will hurt the Republican by, what, you tell me, two or three points, but it's going to be local issues that carry the day?
0: Yeah, there are, there are a few local issues, but I think this still, I think a lot of voters are still looking at this in terms of the lens of, of, of the national race. For example, when, when Joe Heck divorced himself from Donald Trump, said, not only am I not going to vote for him anymore, but I think he ought to step down yeah. as the nominee. Uh, I, I, I cannot tell you the number of uh, tweets, posts, Facebook lives, everything you can imagine. In social media where Trump supporters came on and said, he just lost my vote. I am not going to vote for him as a result of him doing that. And so I think that is enough to impact, Im- impact this race. Whatever you want to call it, the Trump supporters, the alt-right base, whatever you want to call it, has a affection for Donald Trump. And they extend that affection to people who are, uh, quote-unquote, man enough to stand with Trump no matter what happens. So
1: you're saying that, unlike some—I think nationally, a senator like Kelly Ayotte, who who has done a toe-touch, yes, I will support him, but I'm not endorsing him. And then in debate, she said, I think he's a good role model. Then I had to put out a release saying, no, he isn't. And now she's not— endorsing him at all that's ridiculed as not being a person of conviction heck has done a clean clear break with trump but you're saying that could hurt him more than help him
0: yeah i think it could because look on the democratic side the democrats ask the natural question why did it take him so long why when trump was talking about mexicans being rapists and saying all those terrible things about women and talking about banning muslims and making fun of a reporter and all the other list of uh, of terrible things why does that okay and why were these things not okay now, Heck has explained it. his, his uh, cavalier attitude and, uh, and comments about sexual assault rang very personally for him, uh, and, uh, and that was really why he did it. But Democrats aren't giving him credit. On the other hand, Republicans are saying this was a political move designed to salvage his campaign. He, he's not standing where he should be standing. And as a result of that, he's lost our vote. He's, uh, he's a squishy Washington, D.C. politician, uh, uh, as we suspected, all along. And so, uh, uh, Joe Heck has, 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 although Democrats have wanted to portray him as the uh, rightest of the right-wing Tea Party, he's never actually been in that camp. And, uh, and so I think that now could come back to hurt him as well.
1: Cortez Masto, is she a good candidate? Tell me about her. I mean, is she just a fine Democrat, and if she wins, it'll be because she's not a Republican in this Trump year?
0: I think, I, I, I think she's a good candidate in the sense that she knows the issues. She's intelligent, but she's also very cautious, and, uh, and and a lot of times that caution comes off as a, a barrier, a wall between her and the voters. They don't uh, they don't feel like she's connecting with them. You see this at rallies. If you had a uh, if you had a sound meter for the relative applause uh, of of the various candidates, I mean uh, Harry Reid, who's who is uh, so dry and droll. Um, uh, gets outstanding applause. And so uh, Catherine Cortez-Masto, though, is new uh, in terms of this election cycle. She hasn't been on the ballot in a, in a, in a cycle. And uh, I, I truly believe she didn't anticipate running this early. She was getting ready to run in 2018. And so this campaign came about at a, at a time that nobody saw coming when Harry Reid decided uh, to, uh, to retire. So I think her caution while admirable in the sense that, you know, it's nice to finally find someone who's going to think about a question before they actually answer it, also comes back to herder in in the sense of being able to connect with with voters as people.
1: It sounds like a kind of familiar gender dynamic, the cautious woman and the more emotive man.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Although, uh, even Hillary Clinton, though, uh, when she does these rallies, is able to to, uh, kind of connect and hit, So you're saying Cortez Masto doesn't even connect as well as Hillary Clinton does? I have seen her in all sorts of different rooms. I've seen her at uh, state bar conventions talking about the work that she did on on child sex trafficking. She has the attention of every person in the room, but the trouble is they're all lawyers. They're all people who are attorneys who are, you know, relating to her on that basis. Uh, When she comes in to do a political rally, I think she hates that part of running for Senate. And that's too bad because it's a really, really big part of running for Senate. And if you don't do that well, that's going to be a deficit you got to overcome.
1: Where do you think the state's going to go with their presidential vote?
0: I think in, in this case, I would give, uh, uh, counterintuitively, I would give an advantage to Hillary Clinton. Slight advantage to Hillary Clinton.
1: So the interesting thing you're telling me is that unlike most places where if the Republican is said to be hurt by Donald Trump, it is because people won't come out, uh, the top of the ticket drives participation, the, the Republicans won't come out, and that would hurt Heck. You're asserting a different dynamic, which is the Trump supporters will be coming out, but are actively resentful against Joe Hack.
0: Yes, yeah, and it's actually both. It's actually both. It's what you, you said before, too, because uh, Democrats are still trying to keep him as wedded to Trump as they possibly can. Uh, I moderated a Senate debate on Friday night in which Catherine Cortez Masto said he's still a supporter of Trump. And, uh, you know, his supporters went wild, and he said a line like, well, I guess she hasn't been reading the newspaper in the last couple of days. But the fact of the matter is they're trying to keep that that union uh, together as much as possible. Yet, on the other hand, uh, the uh, the divorce that he has very publicly done at a Republican rally with Mitt Romney, a Trump critic, uh, has stirred up resentment among the Republican base, uh, so I think the, the, this is a, is a very uh, interesting and quite unique dynamic that's going on here that I think you probably don't see in other states. And
1: also, we haven't even mentioned that an insignificant Mormon population, and they'll like what he did, and they'll like the association with Romney.
0: I think that's I think that's absolutely true, and uh, and and you have uh, in this state I know plenty of uh, people here who are Mormons, and the antithesis that you see in, in Utah and Salt Lake City that Mormons have been talking about for a long time, the fears that they have uh, as, as a particular religious group has been targeted, even though it's not them, um, are carrying over, I think, to uh, to uh, this race as well.
1: And my last question is, do you think the insights you have about how you think this race will go, does it tell us anything about which party will control the Senate?
0: Well, I think uh, it's very possible. That this uh, Senate race here, and, and this may be, uh, you know, a bit of, uh, of a hometown Nevada pride. We want to matter in the national elections. We want to be the fulcrum upon which the entire Senate uh, uh, turns. I think it's possible that, that uh, this could be a deciding race. Yeah, absolutely. If, if Catherine Cortez Master wins the race, uh, the, the, the Republicans uh, could lose control. And I think that would be, uh, it would certainly be a, a very interesting dynamic and a victory for Harry Reid, who desperately wants to keep that seat in the hands of the Democrats.
1: All right, Steve Sebelius, who covers politics for the uh, Las Vegas
0: Review-Journal. That's right. Thank you, Steve. Absolutely. Glad to do it.
1: And now the spiel. With less than a week to go before the election, certain truths apply. One is that Hillary Clinton is fluctuating between the low and mid-40s in national polls. Trump is fluctuating in a slightly lower range, in high 30s to low 40s, but his high matches her lows. Of course, a lot more goes into winning the electoral college than these national polls. In fact, national polls don't go into it at all. And Team Clinton is clearly on to the fact that, as Tommy Vidor and I talked about, whichever candidate is dominating the news cycle is losing ground. So what does Hillary want? Hillary wants Trump to talk Trump to tweet. Trump to take the bait. Here is a really pointed ad that started airing today. The first words on the screen are, he really believes this. Then we see Trump's face. Putting a wife to work is a very dangerous thing. When I come home and
0: dinner's not ready, I go through the roof. Grab him by the...
1: And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. (laughs) The music of that ad has been described as ominous. I say it's more elegiac. It's sad. And while what Trump said about where to grab them was bleeped, you heard that part, I want to also point out that the words, it was a transcript of this statement, but the words were blurred out entirely. It wasn't a P asterisk, 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 Y situation, just a blurred out word indicating that everyone knows what he said, but here's a reminder anyway. I think by now, everyone also knows about Alicia Machado, the former Miss Universe who Trump put on a weight loss diet. So there was Alicia Machado on the trail. Maybe this would be a way to get Trump talking about her talking about something other than Comey and Obamacare. And when I analyzed Alicia Machado's words, the actual speech she gave, I became even more convinced that the words were specifically calculated to draw Trump's fire.
0: He made fun of me and I didn't know how to respond. He told me that I looked ugly and I was massive. He even called me Names, he said to me, Miss Piggy, Miss Housekeeping, Miss Eating Machine.
1: This has got to get to Trump. The crowd groaning, but they must have already known the insults. And I bet Trump never really called her Miss Eating Machine. Miss Eating Machine doesn't even make sense. Miss Eating Machine? To drive the point home and further annoy Trump, Alicia Machado provided her own Spanish translation. But listen to what she said.
0: Con sus bromas.
1: So there, there you heard Miss Peggy, Miss Housekeeping in English, and the Spanish translation, Miss Gorda, Miss Fea, is Miss Fat, Miss Ugly. She doesn't try with for the eating machine thing. You know Trump's gonna take the bait on this. He has to clarify it, right? And then she went on.
0: It's clear, it's really clear, that he does not respect woman. He just, he just
2: judges us on our looks. Oh, a beauty
1: queen, a model, a playboy centerfold complaining about being judged on her looks. That seems put out there precisely. So Trump could say, come on people. How do you not judge a beauty queen on her looks? How could Trump not snipe at that? How could he not snipe at the whole scene of a woman calling his character into question? He's never not sniped, but so far, no sniping, so far, no bait taking, six more days, can Trump go all six days on message, Comey, Obamacare, Obamacare, emails, So all he needs to talk about, we shall see. I do not know if this truncated Trumpian version of discipline will be enough, but for Trump, it will be a record. And that's it for today's show. One day, Just producer Chris Berube remained on an ice cross for 30 minutes until the public interrupted by removing the ice blocks from underneath him. Just producer Mary Wilson confined herself to three stark open-sided cubes cantilevered to the walls about five feet above the floor. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, and Andy Bowers, chief content officer, of the Panoply Network embarked on a dramatic performance. They started walking the Great Wall of China, one from the east, where it rises in the mountains, the other in the west, where it ends in the desert, and after three months and thousands of miles, they met in the middle and said goodbye. The gist, I will change my rate of speech to screw with anyone who listens at different speeds, and I'll do it while suspended from a pentagram dripping yak's blood. Brilliant! Umperu Peru, do Peru, and thanks for listening.